Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to the Table Dallas. We are glad that you're with us today, although there are many in our midst who are not with us today. Seems like we have a, the latest strand of COVID kind of running through or COVID scares. It is interesting now that when you feel not so well, the first thing you think to yourself is, I better go get a COVID test, which is actually a good thing because we don't want to turn around and spread it to everybody else. Um, so some of you were out last week with that and back this week, and we have some others out this week. Um, but we're glad that you're with us here at beautiful Mill Street House or wherever you're joining us around the world as we continue in our year-long thread series where we've, we're going to be pairing five different, um, five different sets of imagery that we can connect and um, have real significance in Scripture. And for the first couple of months we're together, we're looking at sticks and stones, which is anything related to trees and stones or altars, things like that. And then we'll have fire and wind and saints and sinners in the summertime, desert and water. And finally, as we come to the end of the year, we'll be doing mountains and valleys. But when we were together last week, um, I was surprised by the way in which my opening thoughts, which I thought were going to be just kind of like a little Passover statement or two that uh, like I often make about meaning and establishing a much more robust sense of meaning. And afterward, I was chastised by more than one member of our community for saying, why did you move on from that? We were just getting into a role talking about it and we could have gone into it. And I have to confess to you that in the back of my mind as an EPC minister, there are five things that have to be a part of every, <laughs> every gathering. And one of them is you have to preach or open and study the scriptures. So in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, we've got to get to the text. We've got to get to the text which does a disservice to the conversation, but keeps me from being defrocked. <laughs> fair fair yeah, trade-off, yeah. right? So what I thought we would do is we would begin um, this morning with a little bit of a review. And for those of you who weren't here and didn't get a chance to listen to the podcast, um, it'll help catch you up because these are going to be key elements um, in terms of how we approach these scriptures, because we identified last week at least one third of the scriptures are poetry. Another third plus, we'll, go, we'll call it a strong one third, is narrative. And then you have the one third that we might think of as his, you know, like, like Paul. <laughs> Let's just say it that way, Paul or the Gospels, right? So you have this sense um, that it will bring with it, as we studied in our Read Like a Rabbi series, um, some challenges, some challenges, right? So we've been taught often that when we read and study scripture, we're supposed to ask the question, what does it mean? What does it mean? We're reading for meeting. And the challenge we identified last week is far too often we read with what one of my favorite writers, James K.A. Smith, calls Cartesian eyes, Cartesian eyes. And that's derived from Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore I am. So we think of ourselves primarily as thinking people, right? So when we say we're reading with purely Cartesian eyes, someone who was here last week, 
help explain that to those who weren't or remind the rest of us. What did we mean when we said we read with often purely Cartesian eyes? Somebody. Right. Yeah, good. So we're reading for like a central meaning or um, a main idea, right? Or we generally just called it the point. Like, so what is the point of the text? Okay. Um, what are some of the potential pitfalls that go with that kind of purely reading approach to scripture? What are some of the challenges potential pitfalls that go with that. You miss the other, points. You miss the other how about if we say meaning instead of points, okay? But yes, we miss perhaps other points of meaning, points of meaning, all right, what else? Yeah, we miss out on potential associations. author's intent. Yeah, exactly. We might arrive at something way off the gamut from what the original intent of the author was, which is one of the challenges that we talk about in Reading Like a Rabbi, one of our principles. <laughs> Do the best we can to try to figure out what is the, the intent behind the author or authors, including this piece of narrative or poetry or instruction, right, in the scriptures. Anything else? Any other potential, excuse me, pitfalls? Yeah, so once you have something in your mind and that's what you're reading for, you could just glance all over things that aren't what you're looking for. Gotcha. Yeah, you can make up meaning. <laughs> I like that. Good. Any other challenges? Well, particularly, science is showing this, like with social experiments, we think we're rational beings, but a lot of the times we just come up with a point and we backfill the right. rationality. We don't walk it through the standard, I got to this assumption because all the logic was there. Mm -hmm. It's This is the way I want it to be, yeah. and I'll just make up stuff in my head. And so what that what what's highlighted by your statement is this belief, or it, it's true, the way that God created us, he created us as both rational and emotional and spiritual beings. And when we elevate one and say, this is how scripture is supposed to be read, then we miss out on the fact that there are quite clearly texts that I would challenge you to find a, quote, point to, like a Cartesian point. In other words, okay, this is something that I'm supposed to then take in and say, okay, this is what it means. There are, and so we end up being frustrated because we need our emotion to read the scriptures. We have to in, in, in include that. It doesn't mean that we should never read for a point. Don't walk out of here, as I said last week, saying Pastor David says the Bible has no point. <laughs> All those kinds of things. Again, context is everything. We're suggesting that we should not read purely with Cartesian eyes because there are multiple texts. Many times we're in encounter text, especially poetry and narrative, where if we read with that kind of intent, we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to, yeah, we're going to. I don't know. We're going to do, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We're doing harm to the text, for lack of a better term. There's a better way to say Misinterpret. that. 
yeah, you're misinterpreting, we're, we're harming the text, we're doing a disservice to the text. And so we've been, especially when a text is written that doesn't really, isn't really meant to convey a point. And so when we try to force that on it, that's what we get. So we talked about, we need to develop a more robust, more robust concept of meaning. So we said meaning often is simply the emotion that the text evokes in the reader and invokes in us, original reader and invokes in us. Sometimes that can be the meaning, right? Especially when you're reading poetry and stories. Like you'll read a story and, and you'll be like, oh, that's terrible. Or I cannot believe somebody could do something like that. Or I can't believe that I actually think this is a good thing or whatever the emotion is. Sometimes the meaning is what it evokes in you. We talked about like Psalm 23. <laughs> Right, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures, all of that. Like we could read for a point, like, okay, God is like a shepherd. But really we read it because it gives us comfort to know that when we're going through something like the valley of the shadow of death, that God's there to comfort. That's supposed to evoke an emotion on us in us, not be, okay, God is a shepherd. That makes me a sheep. I'm dumb, or whatever. You can go with that, right? Second. Meaning as emotion. Secondly, meaning as association. Sometimes a text means by making us think of other things, establishing connections we may not have made before. Hence the entire threads series idea here, right? Because meaning is association, a text may not always have a clear-cut singular intent. Sometimes that means... <laughs> That in order to understand the point, if you will, of the text, is we just have to live in the tension that we do not know. We don't understand, we don't know why, and we don't know how, and instead of trying to figure it out, we have to just settle with, and as Len Sweet says, live in the tension of opposites. Okay? And then finally, meaning as defamiliarization. Sometimes meaning is making the familiar and the normal seem unfamiliar and strange, especially when you're reading the same texts. Oh, we have one set of texts, this compendium called the Bible. If you've been in faith for a period of time, you've hopefully read the whole of the scriptures, if not a huge chunk of that. And so part of the time we're reading just to like shake us up. Like, oh, we think we know what God is like. And then we read this and we're like, wait a minute. That doesn't fit the box I created. All right? So we have meaning as emotion, meaning as association, and finally, meaning as defamiliarization. Any comments, thoughts, questions about that review of where we were last week that anybody wants to add? Anybody have any Further thoughts about her? Or you walked out last Sunday, you're coming back in and nothing. That's a teacher's nightmare, isn't it? Nothing? Okay. Just come back in ready for round two. All right. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to see how the story of Jacob that we studied last week in Genesis 28 continues to try to identify some of the threads that tie his story to other stories. So we already know that Jacob comes from the most famous faith family in Judaic history. His grandfather is? Abraham. Abraham his father is? Uh-huh. And that the blessing 
intended for everyone in the world would come through Abraham's family. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the family line, and through that family line, the entire world would be blessed. No pressure, right? Do you think, and that's why I stopped, when you stop and you think about that for a moment, does that feel like that would be a weight upon your life if you grew up and you're like, hey, just like my grandfather and just like my father, the whole world is intended to be blessed through me. Yes. How would that make you feel? I don't know if they actually thought about that much. <laughs> Based on their behavior. <laughs> okay. Holly? I think probably historically understanding the historical context of how important family name was and legacy, I guess, more in Eastern cultures, legacy and name is much more powerful and palpable, I think, in, in how you're thinking. So supposedly, when you're making decisions, you're not just making it for yourself, you're making it for your entire family in Eastern cultures. But did they know then it was supposed yeah. to spread throughout the world? I mean, just, just the story that God had spoken to my grandfather, he had spoken to Isaac, and now he had spoken to Jacob and said the same thing, like, through you. Yeah. I don't know that it did for sure, but I wonder that question yeah. sometimes. Yeah, I yeah. think the evidence is that a lot of these stories are gathered in, like, while the, the people, generations later, were in exile. And so the ability to have a cohesive narrative of it's from one person through slow growth through a couple of generations that really struggled to get it together and then became something we need to get back to as a nationalistic idea of who we are. The fact that just they could have one narrative tells us that at least, even if they didn't live up to it, the story was told that every time the family gets together. Yeah. There was an important, it was a huge part of their national identity. And that's one way that scriptures, particularly the Torah, is read that when we're reading about individuals, we're reading about the nation, the nation of Israel. Even though its name doesn't, you know, the name Israel doesn't appear until the time of Jacob, we're talking about a national identity. Go ahead. I feel like there, going back to the original question, I think, there are kind of two different approaches that we've seen even across all of like the kingships and you know, other things that either that person feels the weight mm -hmm of the responsibility to then do well, or they feel more of the, like, um, uh, like it's a privilege. It's, yeah. you know, like it's, it's that other, like one is I'm gonna take care of everybody and then, oh, look what I have. Like, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, and we saw that, didn't we, with Jacob's response last week in 28. Like God said, I'm going to do this, and through you, the world, he, you know, renews the covenant with him, and he goes, okay, if you do this, and if you do this, and if you do this, then I'll do this, this, this. Right? That was Jacob's pledge back to him. It was laden with if-then language. Right? So you get maybe that sense of it's a little bit of an entitlement. And if you keep up with what you're doing, I'll go ahead and I'll go along with your plan and, and be this blessing to the world, I guess. You could read it that way. Sure. Phil? It's amazing to me that the story continued through. I mean, after Jacob, what, we got 400 years or something? Thereabouts. I mean, 
mean, think about that. I mean, we toss that around like it's nothing, but uh, how many of y'all had something passed down in your family since Plymouth Rock, you know, when they landed? I mean, and that story was told the same way without embellishment, without... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just pretty incredible. But the oral history and how that was passed down back then right. is much more important than now. Right. Yeah, sure. I, I don't know that it's meant to, to make you feel awake because I think about in our family, there yeah. is a story. In fact, we're yeah. about to do it in July. Yeah. There is a story that's told, and mm-hmm. there's a reason that story's told. And it's, I don't know that it's more of like a weight, but it's just to remind you from where you came, your responsibility for where you're going. Right. And not knowing what that is, but being able to have that comfort of knowing that you have these that came before you that may have struggled. But they still made it to where they needed to be in faith and that you can continue to know this. Yeah. Um, one of the things I miss, um, there's a few things I miss about the pomp and circumstance of like high church Presbyterianism, like the church I came from in Chattanooga, you know, where I wore vestments and a collar. And um, But when you were the preacher that day, everybody else, we're all wearing the same vestments. We have the same robes. You know, we're all wearing collars or, you know, not all of them wore collars, but we were all dressed the same way, except for the speaker, the preacher wore what we called the dingling. I don't know why that was the title. He'd say, oh, I forgot the dingling. You'd run in there and it was a, it was a cross. It was a solid gold cross that probably weighed something like nine or 10 ounces. I mean, it was a heavy, and you would wear it symbolically around, the weight of that meant what you have, you have a serious obligation here. And so when I say wait, I think I'm thinking more line, along the lines of, I'm not sure Jacob understood yet. And this is like a roller coaster in his life of like, are you going to understand the responsibility that is given through you, that is, is going to be passed through you? And I'm not sure he quite gets that, even though, interestingly, stone, the stone imagery is seen in like an amazing set of Jacob's life. Last week, we saw him using a stone as a pillow that once he saw the dream, he turned that fantastical dream, you know, going up and down the, the, the staircase, he turned that into an altar. And then um, later on, uh, when he goes to find his wife, Rachel, in Genesis 29, he rolls a stone away from the well. Um, he also builds a stone memorial when he finally leaves Laban later on in his life. And uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, uh, and he's my go-to Hebrew scholar when we're doing translation work, uh, his name is Robert Alter, funny name, like because we're talking about building an altar, but it's A-L-T-E-R. Robert Alter, he wrote, Jacob is a man who sleeps on stones, speaks in stones, wrestles with stones, contending with the hard, unyielding nature of things. The only thing I would change to that would be maybe contending with the hard, unyielding nature of his heart. But that's my interpretation of, of what's happening here. So a lot's happened between Genesis 28, where Jacob uses that stone. I wish I could tell you that his life was great after he encounters God in that miraculous way. Remember, he hadn't spoken to God yet in Genesis in narrative. Now he speaks with God or God's messenger more clearly, more accurately, God's messenger. And you would think, yes, now he's back on track um, away from his devious and conniving ways, but unfortunately, those of us who know the story know that's not true, right? What are some of the things that we remember happening now after 
in Jacob's life after that first event where he encounters God. I gave you a couple of clues with the stones. How does his reunion with his brother Esau go? Yep, so he, remember he sends his wife and his kids over, and then something amazing happens after he does that. Anybody remember? He wrestles with an unknown man. That's that same storyline. So he's going to, you know, deal. he's run away in 28. Now he's going to be reconciled. But before all of that, he goes and he works for Laban, his uncle, who probably is the only one who can mirror his trickster-like nature. It's like two con men, right? And you know that because when he finally leaves, they're like, okay, we're going to separate, go separate ways. And both of them set up a con. Do you remember it? They're going to divide the flocks. So Laban does one thing, paints them funny to make sure that he gets certain ones. And Joseph, uh, Joseph, Jacob is doing something weird with their feeding. He sticks that little branch in there. Both of them trying to cheat and defraud the other one out of it. So nothing has changed. The point of this is simply this. Nothing has changed in Jacob's uh, pattern of behavior, at least as far as we can tell. But me. I'm going to be Jacob's advocate. Sure. A lot of this is uh, prophecy also. Like in order to be able to uh, acquire the flocks that he had, uh, uh, the sages teach anyway that uh, an angel told him how to do that with the stick so that when he sticks it in the water, the sheep would get startled by it and, and then that, that, that made stuff happen. So that, that's fair enough. <laughs> that is a fair point. So it's like he's been cheated out of his wife, you know, had to work the extra. He's getting cheated out of it. And it's almost like God says, okay, let's even this out a little bit. Fair enough. He walks out of there, the end of that chapter, 32, is he walks out of there a very rich man. But, you know, he, he also, like when Laban chased after him and caught him and everything, he said, what have I done to cheat you out of anything? Correct. And Laban couldn't come up with anything. He didn't. And, and Jacob laid out his case, and, you know, he, he was honest, so somewhere along the way, he Yeah, and certainly when we get to the wrestling, him wrestling with the man, you get that sense like, hey, I, don't don't leave me until you give me a blessing, you know, all of that piece. So obviously some things are happening. Unfortunately, I wish the narrative um, was a little nicer <laughs> in terms of then we would see some of the, the product of that. So we're, in our text this morning, in our this is our thread text where we're going to see a similar thing happen to what we saw in 28. is found in Genesis 35. 1 to 8. And at the bottom of your page there, there's a number of, there's a question where I, you know, on your, on your artifact about interpretive, I'm sorry, did I put it, flip it back over? Hyperlinked. Okay, that's fine. Um, 28 is your original text, 35 is the hyperlinked text. And um, again, we're using principle 2 about genre, and we're using principle 7, putting things in its historical context. And of course, we're using 8 that all of scripture is hyperlinked. Um, That's kind of our focus here. So Genesis 35, 1 to 8, 
is uh, where we're going to pick up the narrative. Somebody go ahead and read that for us. Yes. God said to Jacob, get, uh, get up, go to Bethel and live there. Build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you ran away from your brother Esau. Jacob said to his household and to everyone who was with him, get rid of the foreign gods you, you have with you. Clean yourselves and change your clothes. Then let's rise and go up to Bethel so that I can build an altar there And who has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, as well as the rings in their ears. And Jacob buried them under the parapet at Shechem. When they set out, God made all the surrounding cities fearful, so they didn't pursue Jacob's sons. Jacob and all the people with him arrived in Luz, otherwise known as Bethel land of Canaan. He built an altar there and named the place El Bethel because God had revealed himself to him there when he ran away from his brother. Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, died and was buried at Bethel under the oak and Jacob named it Alon Baku. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so right away the chapter opens with God giving two commands to Jacob, right? Do you see those? That's reading for a point. You see those two, right? Which is what? He's like, get up, like, you know, rise up. By the way, that's a repeated phrase in Hebrew throughout this entire chapter of 35. Rise up, get up, rise up. The sun rises, the sun goes down, get up, all right? And go to Bethel and build an altar, right? So, but right away in those opening verses, the authors of Genesis, I think, invite us to make some narrative connections. How do we see that in the text? There's an invitation in the, in the wording and the phrasing of the text that is meant to make us connect this story to another story. How do you see that in the opening verses here? Again, we're learning how to read the text in this way. What do we see? There's an invitation to connect this narrative. To when he ran away from his brother. Yeah, so it says, go and do this. Go, get up, go build an altar. And then in the parenthetical statement, it says what? Yeah, back to the place where you ran away from your brother. So automatically we're connecting 35, right? Back to the story of 28. So immediately in your mind, you're, you're thinking, okay, this is after he cheated his brother Esau. His mother is a conniving, is part of the conniving, gets him out of there, sends him away to ostensibly to go find a wife, but basically to run away. And so we're seeing, okay, there's going to be a connection between that story and this story. Now I want you to look at Jacob's response. When God asked him to do that, I think it's verses two or three through five or six, somewhere in there. What does Jacob do in response to that? Cleans house. That's an interesting thought. So you read it, you hear him as cleaning house. What do you mean by that? Well, he, and he tells everybody, let's get rid of the 
which we've just picked up. Interesting. And everybody had one. They, they would have gotten it from, from when they raided Shechem, yeah. the, the chapter just over, and that includes the clothes. So whatever clothes they had on would have come from that area which were idol worshippers. Okay, you're going to arise, which means God wants to elevate you to build an altar to him, and you're wearing what? <laughs> you know, change your clothes, get rid of get rid of the, everything that has to do with idol worship. And it's probably worth us going back, and I have it in my notes here, in a little bit different place, but we probably should go back and be reminded of, and if, if we had had the time, we probably should have looked at uh, Genesis 24. But Genesis 24 story is one of the most horrific stories in all of the First Testament. Because it identifies Shechem as a place where um, some unspeakable violence happens toward women. And a whole, a whole lot of silence about that violence. And then even more violence on top of that. Um, and if you don't know the story, Leah and Jacob had a daughter named Dinah, the only daughter in the family. And she went out one day to visit her friends. And somewhere along the way, the prince of the city's son, his name was also Shechem, which makes it really confusing. Um, he spotted her, he stole her, and then he sexually abused her. He raped her. And that wasn't enough for him, right? He became obsessed with her and he enlisted his father, whose name was Hamor, to help him make a deal with Jacob and his sons so that he could keep her as his wife. Let that sink in for just a moment. She goes out, she's assaulted. The fathers are enlisted. The father of the, the perpetrator and the father of the victim are put together in an attempt to make a deal for her to become his wife. What emotions does that invoke in us? As a father? As a father? How about as a human being? Like, not only is that done to her, but we're going to now make her live with, for the rest of her life, with her perpetrator, who's treating her essentially like a piece of property. Yeah, I mean, yes, you're right, Peter, in that culture, but... It's the same thing if somebody stole a bag of gold from you, or goats or something, you might make a deal, okay, you can keep the goats if you do blah, 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 you know, do something for me. I, I think, yes, you are correct, and you are correct both, because, yes, in a culture, obviously, women had a different role than they do today, but just that storyline itself is horrific enough so that... The brothers, the two eldest brothers, her natural brothers, are like, no way. Now, here's the interesting part. They're like, no way this is going to happen. But so they agree to the plot. They, they put together this plan. They're like, okay, we'll do all of this, but you're going to have to become family to us. You're all going to have to be circumcised. circumcised, all the males. So they get them all circumcised. And while they're recovering, what do they do? They slaughter them all, these two brothers, on behalf of the sister. Then the other brothers, the rest of the family comes in, 
and takes away and enslaves the rest of the, the women and children, take everything they belong. That's the stuff they're wearing, the idols they're carrying. It's the loot from their murderous treachery that Jacob's like, I can't go to Bethel carrying. But here's the part, here's the part that just drives me crazy. There's Jacob says nothing. The only text where Jacob says anything in 34 is he gets very angry at his two sons in verse 30 because his two sons put me in danger. And so when we see that beginning of chapter 35 where God says, go to Bethel, we're seeing these almost a parallel setup. In 28, he's running away from his brother Esau and his murderous intent. And in 35, what's he doing? He's running away from, you would argue, the people of Shechem and their family members who are like, okay, this can't go undone. And he's like, you have to get out of town. He, it's like he has to constant, that's the theme. He's constantly running from these relational challenges. And like, and you could say, well, it was terrible. His sons did the work. His sons were the ones responsible, but he says nothing. Like the argument would be if Jacob would have stood up and said something like, this isn't right. We're not going to do this kind of thing. We might've had a different outcome. That's how we're, I think, meant to read it. But notice that right away, God comes to him. Now, let's, let's think about that for just a minute, because now I got a little bit off of my <laughs> where I was going here. Uh, no, no. Uh, and by the way, Shechem is an important place. In Genesis, early in Genesis, I think it's 17, Abram goes there and meets God. It sets up an altar there. So there's an established idea that Shechem is a place where you meet with God now it's turned into what? A, a place that's defiled. What else? Yes. And I wish I could tell you it gets better for Shechem. Anybody else remember anything else that might have happened besides this terrible event which we just read about that happens in Shechem? Anybody remember anything else? guy by the name of Abimelech, arguably the most evil king of all of the world at that time. He goes there, decides that he wants to be king, so he kills his 70 siblings. It's a, it's a killing field. And later on, Rehoboam, a nearly equal evil king of Israel, does a similar thing and sets himself up, both of them setting themselves up as king, not by God, but by themselves in this kill. It seems like the residents of Shechem just, I don't know. They can't seem to, to I don't know, pick the right kind of people to lead them. What's this place today? Uh, it's still there. It's some, in the New Testament, it's called uh, Sicker, S-Y-C-H-A-R. It's still there. There's a, there's no, no. It's about 12 miles south of Bethlehem. It's still there. There's a monument there. They look like beehives. It's a weird 
I don't know why, but that's what it looks like um, where they've done some stuff. So it's become what was a place where you met with God now becomes a symbol for violence and abuse and the oppression of women. I mean, this is what's, this is what's happened. And he's silent. So at this point in the story, when you read what we just read in 35, the first nine verses, do you feel like Jacob is a sympathetic person in the narrative? I mean, do we feel for him? Or I guess we feel for him. The question is, what do we feel? I gave you my sense. I'm frustrated with him for his silence in the midst of this horrible crime. But is he sympathetic? Stuart, what do you think? You feel sympathetic toward him? I never have. Uh, <laughs> I always kind of thought, okay, he's getting what he deserves. Okay. To me, he seems like he has a great uh, deal of fear and respect for God when he's in the immediate presence of him, but as soon as that okay. presence is gone, he's Okay. How else do you feel? Anybody else have any feelings toward him? I'm not gonna lie, I kind of sympathize with him. I, I feel like he sees all these things happening. He's like, they do this, and it doesn't work out for you. So I'm gonna do this, and it didn't work out for you. He's like, uh, yeah. I, I sympathize. Yeah, I I get a lot of resonance of. Yeah, um, I, I'm very tempted just to, yeah, okay, we're doing this, but then I'm going to control the situation. And since I have God's blessing, I'm just going to, like, I don't cheat <laughs> to get what I need, but, like, yeah, I, I take control of the situations. So I see that, um, I think Jacob is kind of a, a superlative version of that, where he not only, like, takes control of the situation, but, like, goes one step further and gets more. Because I think he has, like, you know, the blessing on his head and his family. So he feels empowered to, to cheat and add that to God, what God's doing anyway. And then he gets consequences because of that. And then spins back to God to fix it. So if, 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 what, you're, if you're, what you're suggesting, the natural follow-up to that would be then Jacob's silence... It's just silence in the text where behind the scenes he's encouraging his bro- his sons. He's not trying to stop his sons from doing what they're doing so that he can remain in control of it. Because it seems like those yeah. two things are opposite. Be yeah. in control of the situation. Right, right. Be silent. Well, I mean. Or maybe that is how we control it. The other side of control is when you th- see things start to spin out of control, then you distance yourself from the situation gotcha. because you don't want to get caught. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that was just going to happen naturally. I mean, that's what happens when, like, brothers see their sister defiled. But he certainly, you get the sense that Jacob knew what his sons had done was evil, right? How do we see that? You see that, I think, how? Does it, does it feel a little pathetic? Like, in the sense of the imagery, like, I'm going to do this terrible thing, I'm going to bury it in the ground, like, somehow it's going to make God forget about it. I don't know, I, I read that kind of like, does it feel a little bit like, 
all right, the damage is done. What good is it going to do you to bury a few golden trinkets from your ears and stuff in the ground in the big scheme of things? It's a type of tree. Okay. Yeah, it's a type of tree. Yeah. To me, this whole story kind of feels like, you know, when your parents go out and your house is dirty, they tell you to clean it up, and then you get the phone call, run away home, you get hurt. Into the closet, into the closet. I guess. We don't have time to really clean it. It looks pretty, right. but actually, yes. it's pretty. That's yeah. what it makes you feel like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, quickly, let's move on to 9 through 15 because there's a couple other things I want us to hit. So I, we set up all of that, and that's important in this thread to set up everything that's happened to his life, especially verse uh, chapter 34. Because if you read chapter 34 for a point, you won't get one. Other than the point is this is horrific, right? But it definitely, you know, there's some emotions, and I'm going to argue there's some other things that we can find for meaning in these two things. But now let's look now how God responds in 9 through 15. So he's done the thing. that He's up. He's on his way there. He gets there after burying everything, and this is what God says. 9 to 15. God appeared to Jacob again while he was on his way back from Padan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but your name will be Jacob no longer. No, your name will be Israel. And he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fertile and multiply. Nation, a nation, even a large group of nations, will come from you. Kings will descend from your own children. The land I gave to Abraham and to Isaac I give to you, and I will give you the land to your descendants after you. Then God ascended, leaving him alone in the place where he spoke to him. So Jacob set up a sacred pillar, a stone pillar, at the place God spoke to him. He poured an offering of wine on it, and he poured oil over it. Jacob named the place Bethel, where God spoke to him. This too is the word of the Lord. So we see some similarities, don't we? What are some of the immediate similarities that we see from 28? A, he's in the same place. B, okay, maybe. Some, yeah, I would argue, yes, God appears to him, but did God appear to him in 28? It says a representative, so an angel. So we have a slight shift there. Now it's God himself. What else? What other parallels do we see? 28 and 35. Both have a renewal of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, a blessing upon them, right? Anything else that we see? So that retelling, I think the key thread word that we're reading for here is that word again. Do you see that at the very beginning of, of, I think it's verse 9? Again, right? God appears to Jacob. God blesses Jacob. God renews his covenant with Jacob. God shows that his his covenant promise is unconditional. And so in a lot of ways, we've come full circle, right? It's interesting, though, um, in one little tidbit you wouldn't know um, without um, remembering other parts of the story. Um, in Genesis 17, 1, God appears to Abram in this exact same place and uses almost identical language. He says, I am El Shaddai. Walk with me and be trustworthy is what he said to Abraham. What did he say to Jacob in verse 11? 
So maybe any concept of trustworthiness? It feels, it almost feels like that. Like, okay, you're not going to be upright and trustworthy. Can you at least give me people fertile and multiplying? But... <laughs> But what's interesting about the name change is that that had already happened once. That had happened back when he wrestled and had that hip thrown out of socket. So I guess one of the questions I asked then is in what ways might this particular interaction with God, maybe the name change, maybe the subtleties of the word, may how do you think it might have impacted his life moving forward based on what we know has just happened and transpired in his life between when he wrestled with God's messenger and when he actually meets with God here. What might have changed? Maybe just in, in the name change. Does that mean anything to him? like with the bloodshed bloodshed between um, this one. It's almost like that got kind of added in. I'm trying to cleanse myself of what has just happened. So let me ask you let me ask you the question this way. So what emotions are evoked in you when you see God choosing the cheater? the one who's silent in the midst of this horrific, these horrific actions, choosing him and saying, you're going to be blessed. Through you, the promised Messiah is coming. That's where all this sin. I didn't stop him from blessing us with salvation. Anyway. I think it's such a picture of, of grace, of what grace really is. That it's not our merits that earns us God's love and favor. And, and all the garbage that we do have trailing behind us doesn't define us. Yeah. And one of the things I want us to see here is I believe that this text, that a huge part of the meaning of this text is in its association with other critical stories in Scripture. And it's probably one you would not have made um, unless you really stop and, you, and you're, you pay attention to where things take place. Shechem, as I told you, is a huge place in the First Testament, both for a place that met with God, but also a place where kings anointed themselves, a place where 
the subjugation and enslaving of women and treatment of women as as pure property that could be disposed of whenever you want to um, a center of evil and yet when we get to John chapter 4 and you get into the life of Jesus we find a very interesting narrative and if you don't know this, the narrative of John chapter 4, the disciples are walking through an area known as Samaria. And Jesus stops at a well and sends his disciples into town to get food supplies. And there at the, woman, at the well, he meets a woman from Samaria. And that town, that place, is Shechem. Now think about the stories, the characters, and let's start pulling some of the threads. I mean, I think it's clear, right, that Shechem had an immediate, the original readers who are reading John's gospel and go, "Uh oh, Jesus is in Shechem. I wonder what terrible thing is going to happen next. That would be the natural response. It's a horrific killing ground place. And Jesus stopped off there. And has this most immediate, this most amazing, right? So there's a connection. Dinah and the nameless Samaritan woman are connected through Shechem, and Jacob and Jesus are contrasted. So we know the story, so think about it. How is Dinah and the Samaritan woman, how are they being connected in the story? How are these threaded together? Jacob didn't even, he doesn't even recognize Dinah. Like, it, it's more of the, it's all about me. And this is Jesus who, in that culture, rightly should not have recognized, like, actually got called on it right. by the Pharisees for talking to women. So Jesus notices her, yeah. he speaks to her, he gives her attention, and that's in contrast to Jacob, who's silent through the middle of all of his wife's trauma. Right? Oh, and, and she had a reputation too. And he knew that. Jesus knew that. And what was her reputation? She had five wives, and the guy she was sleeping with now wasn't even her husband. So, what does that tell us? I mean, in her culture, is she choosing those husbands? She's being passed, She's being passed on from family to family, as Len likes to say. She must have been gorgeous. <laughs> like, there has to be something about her that the guy goes, well, that guy just didn't know what he was doing. I'll marry her and she'll become my wife. And four, five times that happens. So you could argue she's in, she's in that role of the women like Dinah who are just being passed around by the men. In the case of Dinah, her brothers. In the case of the unnamed woman in Samaria, in Samaria her five husbands and arguably the one that she's with now who's not. How else, what other similarities and contrasts do we see? This is important. This isn't a random place that Jesus just stopped off at. We think of it in isolation, but it's directly connected. Well, he told her to go and sin no more, right? Mm -hmm. And just like Jacob told everybody to get rid of their mm -hmm. idols, and in other words, don't sin anymore that way. Mm -hmm. Does Dinah ever have a voice in her storyline? We never hear from her again, other than in the line. 
you know, in the genealogical line. And is the Samaritan woman brought all the town to meet Jesus? She gets a voice. God gives her a voice. And literally, you know, the whole town hears. The revival that happens, happens through Jesus going to the, to the killing field. And having a conversation with a woman who, rep, who metaphorically is a thread to the dinosaur. story. Anything else? In fact, she even says, the Samaritan woman says, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? Our text just resounds with, well, yeah, I am. I am way better than Jacob. Not that Jacob was, I mean, but I am. I, yeah, the answer to that question is, yeah, I am. Way better. And here's why. I'm offering you life, living water, and everything about this place up to now has been about death. How many of you knew that connection before? Never seen it. That's why we do a thread series. <laughs> I think that John 4, I mean, the, I believe in my heart of hearts, the reason this story of 34, Genesis 34, is included is to highlight how bad Shechem was with all of the evilness that goes on there. And then when Jesus comes, he sets it all straight. He just, he reverses the whole thing. And if you don't believe that the Bible literarily is a masterpiece, then you're not reading the same text I am. This is literally seven to 800 years later. And the writers choose this story so that we make that connection and see how beautiful, how beautiful the one who is greater than Jacob is than the one who blessed Jacob, you know, than Jacob himself who was blessed by God. Any final thoughts or comments? That's meaning as association. Question. God told Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And, but then even in the rest of the verse up to his death, he's not referred to as Israel. And people hundreds of years later refer to him as Jacob, not Israel. So what do you mean? Well, the, Is he really um, just calling him the nation of Israel? Yeah. The, the um, sages say that the name Jacob would be used for physical and mundane matters. Israel would be used for matters reflecting the spiritual role. So picturing, yeah, so when the name Israel is used, it's, it's picturing the... Aspirational. Yeah, yeah, aspirational. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is what you should be living up to. And when they refer to him, they refer to him as Jacob, it's like he didn't really live up to that. Not yet. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, but it's still the, the play, the mundane, they call it the mundane and profane. I, I prefer right. using the word mundane. And the physical is still not a bad thing. We just need to take that and give it to the Lord so that it can be elevated. You know, everything that we do, it needs to be an act of worship to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's where Jacob and Israel can meet, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, 
please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.